Hello and welcome to Family Room Discussions, where you invite me, Dalton Anderson, to your Come Follow Me study, and we discuss ideas, questions, and insights to the week's lesson. Let me be clear, I am not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I am your average saint trying to build my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures, and I have found that by discussing Come Follow Me with others, it helps me to do just that. My sincere hope is that for those struggling to study Come Follow Me for whatever reason, maybe because you're single and you don't have others to study with, or like me, your kids are still too young to understand English, or really for any other reason, that you will allow me to join your family for about 30 minutes to help with that gospel dialogue. With that, let's start this family room discussion. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, this is episode 33, following along with lesson 32, Alma chapters 53 to 63. And I want to apologize for the off schedule of my podcast. So last week I took a vacation to Lake Powell, and in that game, guess that sound? It was actually the houseboat motor. We were staying on a houseboat and I was recording as we were driving out to where we, we, we were going to be staying, and the only place I could find that was a good spot to record the podcast happened to be in the basement, wall-to-wall with the motor, um, so that was, you know, less than ideal conditions, but I figured I'd have enough time to record the podcast as we were traveling out and then upload it before I lost service, and I went to, I had LTE when I went to upload, but the LTE signal was not strong enough apparently, so I tried... Uh, on three separate occasions to drive to different parts of the lake to find any good LTE service to be able to upload and could not find it. So I was super disappointed about that. And uh, anyways, thanks for thanks for understanding about the upload schedule, but we're going to get back on track. So uh, next week we'll be back to normal. Once again, I just apologize for that. But had a good trip. It was fun. Was able to do a ton of surfing. I love surfing. I could, I could seriously surf all day. Um, I'm sure it's, you know, surfing behind a boat is probably incredibly different than surfing on the ocean, but you don't deal with sharks on the lake. So, well, I mean, unless there are bull sharks introduced into the lake, but that's besides the point. Either way, I love surfing and uh, it was just fun. It was great to be on the lake and, and take a vacation and and all the things that go with that. So let's get into the lesson though. When compared with the Lamanite armies, Helaman's little army of 2,000 young Nephites shouldn't have stood a chance. Besides being, a f- be- besides being few in number, Helaman soldiers were all very young, and they never had fought. In some ways, their situation might seem familiar to those of us who sometimes feel outnumbered and over- overwhelmed in our latter-day battle against Satan and the forces of evil in the world. And I'll pause right there to say I've definitely felt that. But the army of Helaman had some advantage of over the Lamanites that had nothing to do with numbers or military skill. They chose Helaman, a prophet, to lead them. They had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they had exceeding faith in that in that which they had been taught. And as a result, they were protected by the miraculous power of God. Even though they were all wounded in battle, there was not one soul of them who did perish. So when life inflicts spiritual wounds on each of us, we can take courage. The message of Helaman's army is that there is a just God, and whosoever does not doubt will be preserved by his marvelous power. And I believe that. Um, I have faith in that statement. In the first section, first chunk, ideas for personal scripture study, as I exercise faith in God, he will bless me by his marvelous power. So, uh, well, first I'll read it. It says, miraculous stories like the victories of Helaman's young warriors may be hard to relate, be- may be hard to relate to because they seem so improbable. But one reason such stories are in the scriptures is to show us that when we have faith, God can work miracles in our lives. And I love that lesson. As you read about the stripling warriors in, following verse, in the following verses, look for clues about how they exercised their faith in God, what made their faith so strong, and what made the miracles possible. Then it lists the verses. The following table suggests one way you could record what you find. Um, I, so, 
I didn't go through in depth on this table, but the two that I wanted to just point out that I thought of was so on the what they were taught. Uh, the one thing, the recurring theme over and over again, is that they were taught uh, by their mothers to have faith and and not to doubt God or His power of deliverance. So that was the one thing. And then uh, what they did, they obeyed with exactness. This comes from uh, chapter fifty-seven, verse twenty-one. Talks about how they um, obeyed all of Helaman's words with exactness. I think that's a great example and lesson for us that as we follow God's uh, teachings, as we follow the prophet. And we follow those uh, that counsel with exactness. We also will be protected. And then, after studying these verses, what do you feel inspired to do to exercise your faith? Helaman mentioned the role of mothers in strengthening the faith of stripling warriors. What roles have family members and others played in building your faith? What can you do to strengthen your fam the faith of your family and your friends? So I'm gonna quickly jump here for a second, and I'll give some background to this. So I have a friend. Um, He's a friend, well, we served, so he was in the same mission as me. Uh, his name is Josh Bird, and uh, we served in the same mission, didn't actually know each other well on the mission, but then after the mission, uh, I got a job uh, working at a company, and he was there, and we became good friends over that time, and um, he wrote an article in the Salt Lake Tribune back in July 9th, 2020, uh, so just a, about a month ago, and uh, the article was titled, Dear President Nelson is my daughter's father. So I'm going to read a portion of this because it's it's going to get into something from this lesson that I want to discuss that I think is an important uh, principle to understand. So I'll only read a portion, and this is how it starts. It says, Recently I was preparing the sacrament for my young family as we conducted church at home, and my three-year-old daughter asked if she could bless the sacrament. I looked at her and didn't know what to say other than, I'm sorry, you can't, I don't understand why, whether the reason be from God or because of long-held prejudice, but the system we are a part of won't let you. While it could be easy to brush her question off now, as she grows older, the reality is that I don't know how I can ever explain that she will never, as things stand, be able to bless or pass the sacrament, give blessings, or lead a full congregation. While I acknowledge there are a few women in leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a majority of the role models within the church are men who, like me, understand very little about what it means to be a woman and lack the experience to see the world through a woman's perspective. So then his article goes on. Uh, that's the portion I want <clears throat> to read and talk about. And um, because I don't want to be able, like, I don't want to share my thoughts and then uh, anyone feel like this was taken out of context. So truly, if you want to read this full article, it's in the Salt Lake Tribune, published July 9th. Uh, 2020. Um, it's by Josh Bird, and the, it's Dear President Nelson as my daughter's father. So, um, before I before I kind of get into my thoughts here, I do want to genuinely say Josh truly is one of my like really good friends. I love him to death, and uh, and I I know that he has some some real questions on faith and and uh, principles of the gospel and things like that. And I believe that you know, I mean, it's it, I can only be that he has these real faith-based questions, right? But I take issue um, specifically with this last one I read, and this is the one I want to talk about, is that with what he says, while I acknowledge there are a few women in leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a majority of the role models within the church are men. I disagree. Um, and and it's this, it's the stripling warrior story that kind of had me think about this, um, of, of even why I wanted to bring this up. So I think it's important to recognize that I do, I see that there's this belief, um, I, I don't think it's a majority held belief, but there's definitely a belief that I've heard others share, which is that 
the only like role models in the church are the, you know, holders of the priesthood, um, the the our priesthood leaders like a bishop, stake presidents, elders, quorum presidents, so like uh, the prophet, um, essentially leadership positions held by men, and uh, I I just I feel like I don't have a organized way of sharing my thoughts here, so it'll come out jumbled. But I think that is extremely dangerous if we hold that belief. Because as I was pondering about how I received my testimony, um, where my faith came from, growing up, it was never about um, a church leader. It was never about, you know, the whatever priesthood holder was over the congregation, like the bishop or, or whatnot. It wasn't, that's not where my faith came from. My faith came from the home with my mom teaching me and my sister the principles of the gospel. Um, if it weren't for her, I definitely would not be a member now. I don't think I'd have the faith strong enough to carry me through my trials, to carry me through um, the experiences I go through still to this day that challenge my faith, that have me, uh, you know, put my back against the wall of faith. As the saying goes, uh, were it not for my mom's faith, was it, was it not for for her teaching me the gospel and helping me to understand in a way that made me want to believe, want to experiment on the words of God, then I would not be here. I would not be doing this podcast. I wouldn't um, be trying to raise my family in righteousness and to follow after the Lord. Um, my greatest example in, in where I got my testimony was my mom. Same, similar to the, the Stripling Warriors, obviously. So I think the reason I took issue with uh, with Josh's article it, it isn't about the, the the questions he has about the faith or you know why why women aren't allowed to have quote unquote prominent positions in the church or or whatever and I don't want to take you know his thoughts out of context I just take issue with this that the, the the majority of role models within the church are men I disagree I think the majority of role models are women they're moms. Um, because like I said, without my mom, I wouldn't be here. And that's not to, you know, excuse the, the thousands and, and millions of converts who the missionaries come and they find them and teach them and, and then they decide to, to make their covenants with God and enter into the waters of baptism. And, um, obviously they make that decision, but you think of all the children all the families in the church and, and everything. It's it's the mom that's the, doing the primary role of teaching in the home. And I think of all the examples I have there. And most of the examples that I think of immediately are the women in my life. Um, growing up in, obviously growing up in the church, in my primary programs, most of my teachers were women. Um. I never really thought about their gender. I don't think that mattered to me all that much. I just cared that I had a teacher that was there to help lead the discussion and occasionally give snacks. And typically my my female leaders <laughs> gave the best snacks for sure. No, I, I, I think if we, if we have the belief, here's where I take the issue, and this is it. If we take the belief that the only uh, leaders are those that have some sort of position, some sort of calling, then we are missing the mark. We don't understand 
we're true examples of uh, of that teaching, of that faith-based learning come from. It's it's from the home. I think that's why with this with the uh, come follow me and this not a a shift in 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 teaching, but maybe a shift in focus to really emphasize the fact that true gospel conversion is coming from the homes, not from the church. It's to remind us that it really is coming from the homes. I I think it's unfortunate that there was a missed opportunity here um, to be able to to teach and explain that the greatest examples come from within. It's not about a calling or um, it's, it's not about an organizational structure that you hold a prominent position in. It's about your personalized faith and then how you're using your faith to inspire those around you in your immediate sphere, your family and your friends. Um, so I, I just think there needs to be a shift in, in thinking here. If we're to truly understand the gospel the way that it's intended to be understood, which is uh, it, it's not man's view here. So, you know, whether you're the prophet or like me, who I have not held a calling. Um, it's been, let's see what, so we moved here a year ago. And then prior to that in our, in our ward in Orem, uh, when Lex and I got married, let me think. So I had not held a calling for, I think four years, mostly cause I just kept living in wards that there were so many people that didn't have enough callings to give. And I kind of, uh, I mean, I, I'm just a, I'm just a chill guy. You know, I wasn't bringing up complaints or whatever in my, uh, my interviews about, Hey, I love the calling. I was just like, Hey, if, if I can serve in any way, let me know. I did not feel less because I didn't have a calling and I still don't feel less because I don't have a calling. I don't, I guess I don't look at the gospel that way. I don't look at it as a, uh, how do I fit into the organizational structure of the church? I look at it as how is my faith doing? How's my day to day uh, conversion going because that matters far more to me than whether others recognize that oh wow he has a significant calling I think there's a great danger there and I, I saw this specifically on my mission where um, within myself specifically that I looked at like being a district leader a zone leader or an assistant to the president as uh, calls of worthiness like how important you were to the Lord and it took going through that experience of uh, being frustrated, uh, feeling like I wasn't called to be a zone leader, and why, and and why was I getting passed up, and and so on and so forth. I'm. It took that experience of a two year mission, coming home and pondering upon that, and and seeking answers from the Lord to recognize that I was looking at it through a worldly uh, perspective, and I was missing the mark. And so I had to repent and I had to to change my thinking, change my perspective to match the Lord's as he was trying to teach me that it's not, a, to him, it's not about the calling. It's about the personal worthiness, the personal conversion that then the process that's happening there. And we are given experiences in this life to help us to come closer to him. And it, if we're looking at it as a, well, how do I stand in others' eyes, then we're missing the mark. So... Um, I think the Stripling Warriors understood that. Um, Helaman continues to explain throughout this this chunk of scripture reading 
that they uh, they knew their mothers knew it. They had been taught by their mothers. It was their mother's example that kept them going. It was their mother's faith that gave the basis for the foundation of their faith. So I don't know if I can agree at all that the majority of examples in the church are men, um, because for me it wasn't, and it still isn't, and it uh, continues not. Like for me going forward, it continue. It won't matter. <laughs> Someone's gender. It's uh, I look at my wife and just the incredible example she is to our children, and I am so grateful I married her, for her foundation of faith to, that I can trust that when I'm, um, not at home, when I'm when I'm out working or, when I'm with my friends and and she's taking care of our children at home. I have the absolute confidence of knowing that she is raising them in righteousness, and, um. You know, I, I chose to marry my wife because I knew when I was dating her that if anything were to happen to me and I were to die and she was left alone with our children, I know for sure and for certain that she will continue to raise them in the gospel and she will continue to raise them with faith in the Lord. And that was one of the most important things to me. And and having that, that sure confidence mattered the most to me. So she's one of my greatest examples. And uh, I don't care what calling... She has, uh, she will continue to be one of the most revered examples to me. So enough on that. Let's move on to the next one. I can choose to think the best of others and not be offended. Both Helaman and Pahorn had good reasons to be offended. Helaman was not receiving sufficient support for his armies, and Pahorn was falsely accused by Moroni of withholding that support. What impresses you about their reactions in Alma 58, 1 to 12, 31 to 37, and Alma 61, how can you follow their example in similar situations. I'm going to pause real quick to just read an example from uh, of, of Helaman's account here. Um, and I, I won't read the full like scripture reading here because it was specifically in 58, 35 to 37 that I wanted to, to focus on. So it was, Behold, we do not know, but what we are unsuccessful. And you have drawn away the forces into that quarter of the land. If so, we do not desire to murmur. And if it's if it is not so, behold, we fear that there is some faction in the government that they do not send more men to our assistance, for we know that, they're, that they are more numerous than which they have sent. But behold, it mattereth not. We trust God will deliver us, notwithstanding the weakness of our armies, yea, and deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. So first, I love in 35, he's like, um, we don't know why we haven't gotten more men. Maybe you've tried and uh, it's just not like something happened and we don't know about. And if so, like, we're not complaining. We're, you know, it's like a very peaceful way of saying that. Uh, like, you know, it, it, gosh, I hate to burden you, but if it's possible, we'd love to have more men. We won't complain if something's happening. And then, uh, you know, regardless of what happens, we will trust God to deliver us. Uh, he, he ends on his faith, and I love that. Elder David A. Bednar taught in some ways and at some time someone in the church will do or say something that that could be considered offensive. Such an event will surely happen to each and every one of us, and I, I can attest it's happened to me, and it certainly will occur more than once. You and I cannot control the intentions or behavior of other people. I love that line. However, we do determine how we will act. Please remember that you and I are agents endowed with moral agency, and we can choose not to be offended. Um, I have a story here, actually. So this is one of our, like, a family favorite stories. Uh, it's of my great-grandpa Pearson, and it's in his journal. Um, I'll just summarize it. So he, he talks about when he was a, a young man growing up that um, his dad, so my great-great-grandpa, was uh, was one of the leaders in the stake. I can't remember his specific calling. 
but uh, he was in charge of of organizing something for uh, Jay Golden Kimball, who was coming to visit their state conference. And if you don't know who Jay Golden Kimball is, um, he's probably one of the most colorful <laughs> church leaders in our in our modern day church history. Um, he offended a lot of people. He was he had a knack for that, and uh, his stories are some of the funniest stories. Like I love stories of Jay Golden Kimball. I think a lot of the uh, <laughs> I think a lot of church myths actually come and they're aligned with Jay Golden Kimball sort of thing. Anyway. So Jay Golden Kimball came to their state conference and something was was amiss. And I can't remember what the specifics were there. But he gets up to talk and he had been told, he'd been given incorrect information that the person responsible for that mess up was my great great grandpa. And so he gets to the pulpit and then takes a couple minutes to berate my great-great-grandpa in front of the entire state congregation and uh, go off on him for whatever he had done wrong. Well, it wasn't it wasn't him. He had the wrong guy. And even if he had the right guy, I'm not exactly sure that's the best way to handle a situation. But regardless, uh, back then, the way the church blocks were was you'd go in the morning, then you'd go home, come back in the afternoon, right? So... Uh, that's what happened after the first block. The family went home, and my great grandpa, my great grandpa Pearson, he was he was offended, and he his heart was uh, was hardened for sure because of Jay Golden, and so he didn't want to go back. And he talks about in his journal that he, you know, as the time was coming to go back, uh, he was like, "Well, we're not going back, right?" And my great great grandpa, his dad, said, "I will not let any man." Come between me and God. We will be going back. And so uh, they did. They went back. And it's a good thing they did because at that second session, someone had corrected Jay Golden Kimball in between and had explained the situation. So he uh, took that opportunity when he got back up for the second session to apologize uh, to my great-great-grandpa and apologize to the congregation for getting that wrong. And then he moved on. My great-grandpa says in his journal that had it not been for the faith of his dad, uh, think about what would have happened or could have happened if they would have decided not to go back. They, number one, would not have heard that apology. But more importantly, it would have set an example and a precedent for them that they could skip out on church uh, when they felt offended or you know, they could come up with a reason or excuse not to go to justify themselves. And he credits that with why he remained active his entire life. It was his dad's his dad's example in in not being in choosing not to be offended and choosing not to let a man, even though he held a prominent position in the church, not to let any man come between him and God. And uh, so that's been a strong example in our family that we like to discuss to this day. Uh, there's been times where. Um, I think every single member of my family actually has had an opportunity to be offended in church, uh, whether it be just from another another member or or a leader. We've all had our own little stories and opportunities to be offended, and uh, have not allowed those, at least thus far, <laughs> to uh, to come between us and God. And so we continue to go to church. But it, I think it is an, it's an important lesson, not just for in, in the gospel and in the church, obviously, but I think in life. You can choose 
whether you're going to be offended or not. You can choose how you want to respond. And and look, there are just there are jerks in the world. There, I mean, there were so there are people that are worse than that. But uh, I, in high school and middle school, was uh, was bullied quite a bit. And as I look back on it, I mean, it wasn't like it was every single day or anything like that. But there were definitely periods of time where specific people uh, just, I don't know, I was an easy target. And I understand. I, I was an obnoxious kid. Um, I had ADD and I wasn't on medication for it yet. So that was one thing for sure. Uh, the other thing is that, I mean, surprise, surprise, this this has not changed over the years. But I used to talk just nonstop, like <laughs> always. And... Uh, I, I don't know. I was I was small. I was scrawny, and it made me just a nice, easy target for bullies. But um, I never allowed that to. I mean, I'd be frustrated, and I'd be sad, and I'd come home sad. But I never allowed that to stop me from being uh, hopeful and and happy about every day. Over time, I think it did help me like gain wisdom. Um, I wasn't just overly optimistic about life necessarily. Not that there's a problem with that, but I think it gave me a more realistic view that. There are good people and bad people, but for the most part, we're all just people trying to, you know, work out our own salvation. And sometimes we do good and sometimes we do bad, but it's not so linear that there are just, you know, you're a bad guy or you're a good guy. Most of us are just people. Um, so that gave me wisdom there. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of the people that, uh, a lot of the individuals or groups that would bully me, many of them actually ended up becoming good friends over, <laughs> over time because of my... Um, my attitude with uh, how I received the harassment. Um, so I don't know. Things work out. You can choose not to be offended. Is uh, it, That's a lesson that I've learned over my life. So in the second section, uh, yeah, let's move to the second section, the family scripture study. So I'm going to skip that first chunk, go to the second chunk. It says Alma 53, 20 to 21. How can we be more like Helaman's young men? It might help to discuss what some of the phrases in these verses mean. For example, what does it mean to be valiant uh, for strength and activity? Uh, so specifically, the one I want to focus on here is in uh, 53 verse 20. Uh, and I'll just read this verse real quick. And it says, And they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times and whatsoever thing they were entrusted. I believe that we have a lot of young men, actually, and I'm talking like, in, in our modern day language, like the young men, 12 to 18, uh, and young women who, who match this description that they can be entrusted with all things. And I think one of the things that I see a lot, uh, I saw growing up and I see it still is that sometimes as, uh, as parents, we don't give enough trust to our, our young men and young women. And, and I, look, I get it. There's a lot of dangers out there in the world. And I'll, like, the youth faith so much. Um, gosh, I remember, like as I look through my growing up years, and it wasn't that long ago. I'll, I, you know, I'm an old soul. I pretend like it was, but it, it wasn't. I'm still young. But uh, I look back just at my growing up experience, and there was so much, um, just so many things that we dealt with. But then I look at what kids are dealing with now, and it's it's way more. And it's only been let's see. So I'm 27. So what? Over a decade. It's way more now, just even 10 years ago, than what I was dealing with now, you know. Um, I think the temptations that our young men and women face are just immense. And uh, the things that come out, 
technology that comes out that can be used for great good, but also great evil is, uh, it's, it's tough to help, I think, teach how to use that in appropriate ways. But what I know more than anything is that we can trust our young men and our young women. Um, and we need to, because they're, they're our growing leaders and we have to trust them and not try and take away their agency or, uh, remove opportunities of growth. And, and look, there will be mistakes along the way, but I look at my life and now as an adult, uh, gosh, sometimes I wish the Lord wouldn't give me my agency, you know, but that's, that's the process. That's mortality. We're not going to be perfect the whole time and we shouldn't be. And that expectation is a horrible expectation and it's going to lead us into dark paths. So, um, yeah, I think we really can't trust our young men and our young women. Uh, next chunk, Alma 58, 9 to 11, uh, 33 and 37. In times of great need, do we turn to Heavenly Father as the Nephi soldiers did? How did, he, how did he answer their prayers and how has he answered our prayers? Uh, I'm going to read in verse 11 of 58. Uh, it says, Yea, and it, did, it came to pass that the Lord our God did visit us with assurances that he would deliver us. Yea, and so much that he did speak peace to our souls and did grant unto us great faith and did cause us that we should hope for our deliverance in him. Um, as we, you know, this is, I'll even read verse 10 to give better context. Therefore, we did pour out our souls in prayer to God that he would strengthen us and deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, yea, and also give us strength that we might retain our cities and our lands and our possessions for the support of our people. As we pour our, our hearts out to God, and, and I mean, I would use that in the, the full sense of the word, like truly, when you think of pouring out, it's not just, you know, dripping or giving a little trickle. Uh, when you're pouring out, you're like dumping. As, as we dump our hearts out to the Lord, I have great faith that he will answer our, our prayers. It might not be how we expect, but he will deliver us. And um, I, I just, I have great faith in that. And he did it for the Nephites. What I love is that I have great faith in that, but that I can look at the scriptures and find examples over and over again that he did indeed deliver his people as they, and and it doesn't probably give uh, the fullest context of the fact they were terrified. They were scared. It says that, but I mean, do you feel that? For me, it's tough. I have to really put myself in their shoes. But if, if I was having the feeling that I was about to die, like tomorrow I was going to wake up, go to battle and die, uh, I would definitely be on my knees the whole time praying for deliverance and praying for my family, praying for, you know, the Lord's support. So, they did that. I think when they, it says they poured out their souls, they truly poured out their souls, and God did deliver them. In the next chunk, Alma 61, 2, 9, and 19, 9 is the one that sticks out to me, but it says, what do we learn from Pahoran about how to respond when we are falsely accused? In verse 9, it says, and now in your epistle, you have censured me, but it mattereth not. I am not angry, but do rejoice in the greatness of your heart. I, Pahoran, do not seek for power, save only to retain my judgment seat, that I may preserve the rights and liberty of my people. My soul standeth fast in the liberty in the which God hath made us free. So I do love this this whole story of uh, so Helaman reaches out to Moroni, Moroni reaches out to the government. Uh, no support comes. They end up losing the cities that they had captured. Moroni is obviously frustrated by that. Sends another epistle and ends up it makes it to the hands of Pahorn. He writes him back, and uh, and Moroni wasn't exactly like withholding in his epistle to Pahorn the second time about how he felt. Like essentially, he's like, if you do not give us the support. I will come and dethrone all of you. <laughs> like, So in response, in my th thinking of how Pahorn responds to this, um, because he easily could have gotten offended, 
it's not like Moroni made it hard for him to not be offended. He says, I love this. He's just straight up. In your epistle, you've censured me. He, so he's not like, you know, awkwardly. Uh, I mean, you said some things that were were difficult or, or th- like he straight up says like, look, you called me out, it, but you were wrong. And it, it doesn't matter. I'm not mad. And instead, then he turns it around to say, but I rejoice in the greatness of your heart because I'm with you. We're together. We're on the same team. We're on the same side. It doesn't matter what you said. You didn't understand. You didn't have the context of what was happening. And I get it. And instead, I'm going to focus on how great your heart is that that you and I stand together. I think Paul Horn hand, handles it master, masterfully, right? He So he doesn't like sweep things under the rug. Instead, he points it out. He's like, look, you censured me. You didn't have all the facts, but I'm not mad and I'm not offended because of your heart. You're in the right spot and I am with you. And together, I want to stand with liberty. Um, and I think we can do the same and we should do the same. And then in the last chunk, Alma 62, 39 to 41, uh, it was verse 41, actually. So I'll read, I'm going to read the verse on this one first, and then I will read the, you know, the, the chunk. Anyway, but behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they, they did humble themselves before God, even in the depth of humility. Here's an object lesson that can help your family understand that we can choose to be either hardened or softened by our trials. Place a raw potato in a raw egg in a pot of boiling water. The potato and the egg represent us, and the water represents the trials we face. As the potato and egg boil, you could talk about how some of the trials your family some of the trials your family faces. What are some different different ways to react to trials like these? According to Alma 62:41, how do the reactions to our trials affect us? After the potato and egg are fully cooked, cut open the potato and crack open the egg to show the same trial. That the same trial soften the potato and harden the egg. What can our families do to be sure? That our trials humble us and bring us closer to God. Uh, Lex and I actually, in, in talking about this, we didn't do this with our kids. We're going to, but we read the lesson together. And uh, this was one that she was like, we're definitely going to do this. I love that. And I love that example too. That the same uh, chemical process in cooking is a great analogy for the, the spiritual process that happens in us. That two people could go through the exact same trial, but it's up to the person and their agency of how they choose to respond to it and how they let it affect them. And I I think that's, you know, that's such an important concept to understand about agency and accountability that it's not the trial. I think too often we focus on the trial we're going through of like, and and uh, we'll hear the, the why me. You know, I've thought that. I've thought that lots of times in my life. Why me? Why am I going through this? Um awkward but it's not the trial it's the how we decide to go through it and do we allow our trials to humble us to bring us um, into submission to the lord or do we harden our hearts become frustrated upset do we you know scream to the sky and say why me god why would you do this to me why are you putting me through this um and i'm not saying it's easy because that's that would be a horrible lie it's not it's not easy. And I think of the things that I've gone through in my life and I have not truly, when I think about it, I have not gone through that much. Um, gone through some dark times, gone through some really tough trials. But when I, every time I hear of someone else's trials, I'm like, Oop, that's worse than mine for sure. And when I think about all of that, I just think it, the reason I am who I am is because I use my trials to humble me. 
And of course, when I don't, uh, when I don't use my trials to humble me, the Lord has made sure too. So it all works out in the end. So, okay. So that was my thoughts on the, the lesson, but here's some scriptures I wanted to, to just quickly talk about that I got and, you know, as always, I enjoyed. So the first one is in, ver- in uh, chapter 53, verse three says, or excuse me, verse two. And Moroni went to the city of Mulek with Lehi and took command of the city and gave it unto Lehi. Now behold, this Lehi was a man who had been with Moroni in the part of all his battles. And he was a man like unto Moroni, and they rejoiced in each other's safety. Yea, they were beloved by each other and also beloved by all the people of Nephi. These two were besties, man. Like, that's a description of best friends right there. And I just love that. I love thinking about how Moroni and Lehi were just best friends. Verse 11 uh, just, excuse me, chapter 54, verse 11. But behold, it supposed me that I talked to you concerning these things in vain, or it supposed me that thou art a child of hell. Therefore, I will close my epistle by telling you that I will not exchange prisoners, save it be on the conditions that you will deliver up a man and his wife and his children for one prisoner. If this be the case, you will do it. Uh, you will do it. I will exchange. This is Moroni's letter to Amoron and, uh, or Amoron. Sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway. He, uh, Moroni wasn't like the most persuasive guy. Like, I love this. Thou art a child of hell. Is it like, I don't know how, has that ever gone well for anyone, uh, using that type of language to <laughs> convince someone to do what they want? And I, I don't think he was necessarily like worried about that. But, uh, if I'm just assuming here, I don't know Moroni personally, but I like to assume that he was a guy who, who really was like super passionate individual and uh, did not care for the like political correctness or, or anything. He just said what he was thinking and uh, maybe charisma wasn't like, or excuse me, persuasion wasn't high on the list of things he extremely cared about. But I think this is also, you know, part of that. I think it's why the Lamanites feared Moroni on the battlefield. Like I think when they saw him, they were like, Oh my gosh, it's him, you know? Uh, so just interesting, like, as I try to think about his personality, that's what stands out to me. I really do compare Moroni and George Washington a lot. In Alma 54, 17, for behold, your fathers did wrong their brethren. This is, so this is Amaron's, uh, response back. Uh, your fathers did wrong their brethren insomuch that they did rob them of their right to the government, which it rightly belonged unto them. And I just want to point out that he is a Nephite. Okay. He, uh, like well, at least he was a Nephite. Now he's obviously the king of the Lamanites. But him and his brother were Nephites. Um, I believe they were the posterity of Zoram. But Zoram was counted amongst the Nephites. So, anyway, it's just weird that he's like, your fathers did wrong their brethren. And he could be counting himself out, maybe, or perhaps. But he's just switched, you know? He, like, he's totally switched uh, history here where he's completely removed himself from the Nephites. And then in chapter 54, uh, verse 23, uh, continuing on, and he says, I am a moron and a descendant of Zoram, whom, oh, so there we go, yeah, confirmation, uh, whom your fathers pressed and brought out of Jerusalem. Okay, that's a, that's a rewrite of history there because, or it's a different perspective of looking at it, I suppose, because Zoram and Nephi were best friends. Lehi talks about that. And uh, yeah, he was pressed to go out with them, obviously, but it sounds like he it was the better end of the deal for him in the long run. So it's just, you know, focusing on the 
the one piece to kind of justify himself and then uh not even take take it in in its full is just obnoxious and and moroni obviously he knows this because in 55 verse 1 it says he knew that a moron had a perfect knowledge of his fraud and that's exactly what a moron was doing so uh anyway we'll move forward alma alma 55 verse 17 Yea, even to their women and all those of their children, as many as were able to use a weapon of war, when Moroni had armed all of those prisoners, and all those things were done in profound in a profound silence. I, did, I really like that. Clearly the Lord was with them, right? Because it talks about, I mean, these are women and children, men, women, and children, prisoners, and they, it was all done within the city, and it was done in profound silence. That's uh, like the Lord had to be with them for that. I feel like, like that's a miracle. Um, in 58 verse 40, let's see, it says, but behold, they had, re- they have received many wounds. Nevertheless, they stand fast in that liberty wherewith God had made them free. They are strict to remember the Lord, their God from day to day. Yea, they do observe to keep his statutes and his judgments and his commandments continually. And their faith is strong in the prophecies concerning that, which is to come. I think that's a super important note that they were strict to remember God constantly and always. And I, we need to do the same. Um, and as we do that, as we make that a pattern of our lives, we will be blessed continually. In verse, or excuse me, in chapter 59, verse 13, it says, And it came to pass that Moroni was angry with the government because of their indifference concerning the freedom of their country. And I'll be blunt about this. This is happening right now. Um, I think there are many within our government that are uh, apathetic, that they're not defending freedom the way they need to. And... um. I think that's a great danger. I think that in a lot of ways we're paralleling what's happening uh, in the Book of Mormon at this time with what's happening now. In Alma uh, 60, verse 11, it says, Behold, could you suppose that you could sit upon your thrones and because of the exceeding goodness of God, you could do nothing and w- and he would deliver you? Behold, if you have supposed this, you have supposed in vain. Uh, this is an important note that Moroni is pointing out, like, we can't just expect God to do everything for us. That's not how this works. We have to be the agents. We have to act in faith, and that is what makes the miracle happen. Um, well, that's part of the process. God makes the miracle happen, but he doesn't just do it, right? He doesn't just cater to us, uh, and we're allowed to just sit there eating bonbons. In, and then in 60, verse 13, For the Lord suffereth the righteous to be slain, that his justice and judgment may come upon the wicked. And I'll stop there. Um for me, this is a good verse on helping me understand why the righteous are slain, why you know bad things happen to good people. Is that it's to stand as a, uh, it's to help justice come upon the wicked. Um, doesn't necessarily make it easier for us when we lose loved ones that were righteous to uh, those that are wicked, but um, that is like it's part of mortality, and at least this gives me a, a piece of understanding why. God allows that to happen. In verse 23 of the same chapter, do you suppose that God will look upon you as guiltless while you sit and behold these things? Behold, I say unto you, nay, now I would that you should remember that God has said that the inward vessel shall be cleaned first and then the outer vessel be cleaned. Uh, outer vessel be cleaned also. This is a good, uh, I think this is an important verse for our lives is that we cannot help others until we are helping ourselves. Now it is often in the process of helping others that we learn to help ourselves and to clean our inner vessel. Um, but truly you cannot convert, convert others above which you're converted. And then in chapter 60, verse 33, it says, you do know that you do transgress the laws of God and you do know that you do trample them under your feet. Behold, the Lord saith unto me, 
If those whom you have appointed your governors do not repent of the sins and iniquities, you shall go up to battle against them. Now, I'm pointing this out so we can go to another verse and I can talk about something. But then in 61, verse 20, and this is Behorn's response. It says, But ye have said, except they repent, the Lord hath commanded you that you should go against them. Um, so this is, he talks about how, he was like, I do, to Pahor and to Moroni says, I joy in receiving your epistles at verse 19, for I was somewhat worried concerning what we should do, whether it should be just in us to go against our brethren. Here's the cool process of revelation. In verse 33, Moroni talks about how the Lord told him this thing, right? But the Lord could have given him the information, the further additional information that Pahorn was not the bad guy because Moroni is looking at it like, oh, Pahorn's also part of them and I need to call them all out unto repentance. So why is it that the Lord didn't tell Moroni in that instance? Because this, and to me, this is a great example of revelation that God gave Moroni the information he needed to act upon, knowing that by so doing, it would give Pahorn a chance to not be offended and respond it would also give Pahorn a chance, uh, like it says here in verse 19, that he was worried what to do and whether it was right to go against their brethren. But because Moroni had received his revelation, that helped Pahorn receive the revelation that he needed. And uh, it's just a cool process of revelation. I think sometimes we look at things, we'll receive revelation, then it'll turn out not to be like not to go exactly what we thought. Or it'll be like, well, why didn't you also tell me this thing? And... Uh, and just understanding that revelation is a process, not an event. And, uh, and and God makes it that way for a reason, for us to learn and to grow from that. And then finally, the final thing I'll say is in, uh, it's in chapter 63, verse 8. And it came to pass that they were never heard of more. And we suppose that they were drowned in the depths of the sea. And it came to pass that one, ship, one other ship also did sail forth. And whether she did go, we know not. This is talking about the people of Haggoth, who uh, they just take off and bounce. And I have heard this said before. I personally believe this. I believe that the people that took off and bounced, uh, traveled, made it to the ocean and uh, crossed the seas and started the Polynesian uh, islands and culture and whatnot. So that's kind of cool that the Nephites did in fact live on and uh, became some of the happiest people ever. (laughs) So... Yeah, that's it for me. So thank you for joining me in this family room discussion. And please share your ideas, questions, and insights that you gained from Alma 53 to 63 with me. But until we meet again, have a blessed week.